So as our journey through the book of Galatians comes to an end, you may be thinking like I am that, that Paul has been a little bit redundantly repetitive, for lack of a better way of putting it. He's kind of been repetitious in what he's trying to get them to understand. And, and I read an article recently that said in order for us to remember things, we need to hear it at least three times. I'm seeing some elbows being nudged that says you need to hear it more times than just three, and I get that. My wife would say that I have to hear it at least five to six times, have it written down, and she probably needs to just go ahead and put it on my calendar as well for me to remember things. It's not that I don't hear it when it's said, it's that um, I don't know if anybody else suffers from this, but sometimes I suffer from what they call selective hearing. I hear what I want to hear when I want to hear it. And so Paul has kind of been reiterating his, his wording over and over. He'll say, well, I told you this. And in case you missed it, let me reword it in a way that you can hear. Oh, and in case you missed that, one more time for good measure. And over and over again in this letter, Paul has been iterating to them how to live out their faith. That it's more about their faith in Christ Jesus that then shapes their actions than it is about their actions alone. And so today, as we close out this letter, Paul kind of shifts to where it's not just about how you live out your faith, but it's now the question of how does this affect my actions and my interactions with other people? And so beginning in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 6, we hear these words, Brother and sister, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. But watch yourself, for you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks that they are of Christ, or if anyone thinks something when, he, when they are nothing, they have deceived themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can become, or then they can take pride, rather, in themselves without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with their instructor." Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what they sow. The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest. If we do not give up, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. 
And so well, I want to stop right there for just a minute because I want to remind you that, that the people that Paul is addressing this letter to are, are people that have, have fallen into a trap. A, a trap of, of shaming those that are, that are imperfect, that, that, that fall short. That, that instead of being gracious when people sin, they say, ooh, did you see what they did? That they shame them, they guilt them, they, they heap on top of, instead of being gracious unto. And, and it's that reminder that what Paul's trying to point to is that, that we've all fallen short. And so here's the thing, we should probably be a little bit more gracious to one another when we fall short. Not if, but when we fall short. Instead of heaping on each other. But, but the church in Galatia, they, they've said, if you don't uphold my standards, then I'm not going to be loving to you because I'm going to point out and shame your brokenness and your guilt, your hurt. Sound familiar? I would dare say that we're not that far from that place in our world today. Somehow we have lost the graciousness that we are called to sometimes. And Paul is pointing them to this idea. He says, how do you deal with other people's sin? He's been addressing how do you deal with your own sin, but how do you deal with other people's sin? And his answer, restorative grace. Restorative grace. That, that if you look in verse 1, at the very beginning of this chapter, he says, hey, what should we do to, when one of our fellow brothers or sisters is caught in sin? You should restore them. But don't lose sight of that last word, gently. Because here's the thing. So often we start to think that when people get caught in sin... Oh, they know what they did. They just need a, a swift kick in the pants to get them back on track. And, and we don't take into account that most times when people have fallen short and when people, especially when your sin has become public, that you're hurting. That, that, that people are broken. And so, and so instead of coming to them gently, we come to them aggressively and go, how could you? And they're going, I know, I didn't mean to. And we just keep heaping on to their guilt and their shame and their hurt. But this call to be gentle with one another is the call that says, stop being a people that say, get up and do better, but start being a people that say, come on, get up. Helping one another when they've fallen short to lift them up, to be on the journey with each other in restorative grace. And Paul kind of doubles down on analyze your own works and not necessarily the works of your neighbor. That, that sometimes we get so caught up in other people's stuff, in other people's sin. And the reason is, is because it's easier to address other people's stuff than it is to address our stuff, right? It's easy to do that. And, but Paul doesn't say don't address their stuff. But what he says is we probably need to analyze our own hearts first. And the reason he's pointing to this is because the church in Galatia has been, lives in a world that is marked by pride and ego. 
Now, the church in Galatia lives in that world. We don't live in that world, thank God, right? A world marked by pride and ego. And in so doing, they, they find themselves living in a world of relative righteousness. Or, or better yet, they, they believe that Christianity is something that is achieved because it's Christianity on a curve, if you will. Y'all know what I'm talking about. When I, when I enrolled in college, one of my favorite things I found out was those classes that graded on a curve. When, when you found out, oh, I didn't do the best I could on that test, and your hope and your prayer was this, that somebody else did worse so that your grade would be boosted up. And, and some of us live out our faith, live out our Christian calling on a curve. Where, where our righteousness is not viewed in relation to who God is, but our righteousness is viewed in relation to our neighbor. And we find ourselves in a place of comparative Christianity. Yeah, preacher, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as them. And, and it's kind of like I'm, I'm a golf fan, and so as you watch golf tournaments and it gets closer to the weekend, there's this thing called the cut. And, and, and throughout the tournament, as they build up in the week, there's the cut line, and, and they know where it's going to be. And it's what happens is there's plenty of golfers that go, if I can just get over that cut line, I'm in the money. I'm good. And so many of us view Christianity in the same way. I just got to do better than the other person, and I'm in the money. I'm good. There's also, I, I, I used to like to ride my bike. I don't do it as much anymore. It's just been too hot, in all honesty. But there's an event in cycling called the Miss and Out event. And in that event, it goes on a circular track, and the last person to cross the finish line in each lap is eliminated from the race. And as I, as I started watching this, and I started looking at all of this, I, I realized that there's this term that they've coined for that race, and it's called the devil take the hindmost. And the, and the reason that they call it the devil take the hindmost is because occasionally what will happen is certain racers, in order to, to hold their energy, to be able to finish the race, what they will do is they will hold back and put themselves at the back of the pack and then when it comes time, they'll do just enough to finish before the last place person. And I don't think that it's any coincidence that they've turned this as the devil take the hindmost because I think that is the trick that the devil would like to play on us in our own Christianity sometimes is just hold back. You don't have to be so devout in your love and grace to people. You don't have to be so loving of neighbor. You don't have to be so gracious. You don't have to give all of that time and energy and order of service to God. But then... In that last moment, we, we kick it up just to go, yeah, but I'm not as bad as they are. We do just enough to get by to the next time. And this is what Galatians had done in their faith. And, and I think if we're honest, for some of us, this is what we do in our faith, is it not? 
And Paul is trying to shift them that, that Christianity is not some comparative game unless you are comparing yourself to the example set in Jesus Christ. It's not a comparative game to your neighbor. We're all called to follow the example of Christ as he extends grace and love and mercy to neighbor and self. And what, he, what he's trying to help them to realize is this, that when you become aware of your need for God's grace, when you become aware of, of your brokenness, it should humble you that you are more gracious to others. It should. And so if it doesn't, then maybe we need to ask the question, have we become aware of our own brokenness, or are we still playing a comparative game that says, but I'm still better than them, they need more grace than I do. They're worse off than I am. Because I would dare say each and every one of us needs God's grace. In different ways and in different moments. And in those moments where we fall short, the last thing we want is somebody else to heap in on top of our falling short, to point it out and to burden us. But what we do want is somebody to extend restorative grace to us. Hey, I know that, that, that you messed up, but here's the good news of Jesus Christ, that what you have done does not have to be who you become. And so, so let's get up, let's dust ourselves off, let's continue to strive for the example set in Christ Jesus together. And so Paul is kind of hoping to open the eyes of the Galatians to this truth, that true spiritual believers do brag more about the grace of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ in their lives, not their own works that they have done to deserve that grace. And we, if we're not careful, can become a church that brags more about what we have done to deserve God's grace than we can about being honest that we just need it and we have done nothing to earn or deserve it. The, the, the word that Paul uses in verse 1 that, that is translated as restore in my scripture is used one other place in the entire New Testament, and it's in Matthew chapter 4. And when that word is used, the literal translation means to mend or restore. And in Matthew, what it's used to define is mending of one's nets. It's used to when fishermen have to reweave their nets because they get a hole in their net. And in a world where your livelihood is based on how many fish you catch. A hole in your net means a whole lot. And Paul uses the same word to address the church. He says, hey, you remember that Jesus guy? That, that, that guy that we're called to follow and serve? You remember what he told the disciples when he said, come and follow me? 
He says, oh, you've been fishermen, but I will make you fishers of men. And, and so what he's pointing the church to is, hey, for a long time, y'all have been using a net. And the problem is, is sometimes your net has a hole in it and you need to restore, you need to mend your net. And what that looks like in our current culture is this is that when we find ourselves inviting people to church, say, come join us on Sunday mornings, what is our motive behind that invitation? And I ask that question because I think if we're not careful, our motive can become something like this. Well, preacher, I just want the church to be back to how it used to be so many years ago when every pew was full and the offering plate was full and we had all these programs. And don't mishear me, all good reasons to want people to come to church. But the answer to why do we want them to come to church is because of this. The restorative grace of Jesus Christ that they may enter into a relationship relationship with him and him alone period and if our motive is anything else we have missed the mark as Christians and so Paul is pointing them to this he's saying hey I was a sinner condemned unclean y'all were sinners and condemned unclean in need of God's grace and then y'all met this guy named Jesus Christ and through that relationship you were made whole and so maybe just maybe we need to introduce people to Jesus Christ and allow him to restore I've shared this before and I'll say it until hopefully the day I die. And if I ever lose sight of this, please call me on it. As your preacher, I've never saved a soul in my life. I've led people to the person that can. My job is not to save souls. My job is to introduce you to the one that can. And I think so often we can get caught up and lose sight of that truth that we start to say, my job is to save your soul. My job is to make you whole. No, my job is to introduce you to Jesus Christ. And allow Christ to work in and through you. And so often we lose sight of that, that gentleness aspect of it and we start beating people over the head with stuff and we go, hey, just figure it out, figure it out. And sometimes you look at Jesus and what does he do? I'm reminded of the woman that was about to be stoned and he sits there and doodles in the, in the dirt and all of a sudden he says, let you without sin cast the first stone. And as they all start to kind of wander off, he looks up and he says, where are your condemners? She says, they've all left. And Jesus' response is not, do better, be better, fix it. He says, go forth and sin no more. Go forth. Go forth and strive to do better today than you did yesterday. And so what Jesus, or what Paul rather, is calling the church to here, and what I think he's calling us to as well, is to mend our nets. If we're going to be fishers of men, so often we have used law. So often we have used judgment. So often we have used image as our net to cast and say, come, be a part of us because you're just like us. 
And what he's saying is the net that we extend as the church should be grace and mercy, hope and love. It should be those, that, that fruit of the Spirit that we talked about. And I love that when you get to verse 11, that first phrase in verse 11 always makes me chuckle just a bit. When he says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. I, I, I kind of, using a modern translation, what Paul's saying at this point is, I done told y'all, now listen. It's kind of like when, when my wife will send me a text message and I'll go, you never told me that. And then three weeks later she'll send me the same text message. I'll go, I never heard that. And then the final time what she'll do is put it in all caps so that I get the point. That's what Paul's saying here. You see how big I'm writing this? Don't miss this point. And the point that he says is this. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to do so that they may boast about your flesh. And so what he's doing is he's unfolding this idea for them. He's saying, in case you've missed it, for the past five chapters... These people that keep trying to compel you to simply do better to be better, they, they find themselves saying it's all about checks and balances and a, and a checklist of what we're supposed to do and they're not worried about faith so that they don't have to deal with the persecution of the cross, with the fact that we need a Savior. And he says, and what they try to do is tell you, if you just look like me, act like me, you'll be fine in the eyes of Jesus Christ. So that they can say, look at what I did. I led them to salvation. And they've missed the point. Paul goes on in verse 14 and says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Peace and mercy to all that follow the rule of becoming a new creation in Christ. As they enter into faith, and are redeemed by His Spirit. And so, as Paul kind of wraps up his letter, he says, my boasting is in the redeeming work that God is doing within me. Is that, is that I'm not, I, I do nothing, but Christ in me does everything. And that as I become more aware of that grace, that it's in my spirit. It is my spirit in which I encounter everyone. And so, as we mend our nets, we seek to welcome in the other. We, we seek to rescue the least and the lost, to introduce them to the one that can save their very soul. And Paul closes out his whole letter with these words. 
Finally, let no one calls me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. What a beautiful prayer. If you've missed nothing else, or if you've caught nothing else in this entire letter, catch that. That Paul's desire for the church is this. That the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with and in your spirit as you encounter creation. That's his call for the church. And so as we close today, I just simply have to close praying that God will help us to mend our nets and the ways that we act and interact with one another and with ourselves. Because if we're honest, sometimes the person it's hardest for us to be gracious with is ourselves. That, that we will show God's love and mercy and grace to God's creation. That, that we will be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in his redeeming work in and through and with his church. For six chapters, for a long time, Paul has been saying this. We're a broken people in a broken world. In need of God's grace. Let us first confess that. And as we experience that grace, let us go forth and be gracious to those that are broken and hurting. Not heaping on, but seeking to restore them to the people that God calls and created them to be. That's Paul's call for the church. That's my prayer for our church. But in order to do so, we must first mend our nets.